Well, as we continue this series in Psalm 23, we just want to once again acknowledge the importance of going through something again and again. As people who like novelty and freshness, sometimes we miss the fact that formation does not happen without repetition. So though you've heard it many times, I want to read the beginning of the psalm up till our point at verse 3. This is Psalm 23, starting at verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's where we find ourselves today. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And as I look at the psalm, to me, this sticks out like a sore thumb. I read about the rest that God invites his sheep into. We heard about that last week, and I just am longing for that type of rest. I hear about the ability for God to be with me in the valley of the shadow of death. I hear about his comfort. I hear about the fact that I don't have to fear. I hear about the way that he prepares a table for for me. He anoints me. He gives me blessing. There's goodness and mercy. I hear all these things and I long for them, but I'm not really sure that I'm interested in being led. It sticks out like a sore thumb. We are not a people who like being told what to do. We want to carve our own paths, find our own way, see what's right for us. Here's what's really significant in the psalm though. What's going to happen, we'll hear about this next week, is we are in the middle of a hinge point. At this point, we have referred to the Lord as he, kind of as this passive third person. But now in verse 4, what's going to happen is we are going to read the words, you are with me. There's been a switch. No longer is David just speaking about God. He's speaking with God. He's speaking to him in personal, direct connection. And this hinge point right beforehand is our verse. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I think we are a people who struggle with this verse. And I think because of that, we lack the ability to enter this new hinge point, this direct access to God. And I have some good news and some bad news. The bad news is this. This very issue, our resistance, our reticence to verse 3, to be led on the paths of righteousness for the sake of God, that very resistance is the exact thing that plunged humanity and, in fact, all of creation into unending despair. What a gloomy way to start. Here's the good news. It literally is the good news of the story of Scripture. It's the good news of Jesus. It's the fact that what we see here in this verse actually points us to the return away from the unending despair into hope, glory, future resurrection. So what we're going to do is actually we're going to return to that point of unending despair. We're going to return to Genesis chapter 3, and we are going to use Psalm 23 verse 3 as a lens for us to see the way that this was at work in the story of our forebears and the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And the first thing that we are looking at is our resistance to authority. 
This is what we see at the start of the verse. He leads me. God is the one in control. He's the one on the throne. And we want to see in Genesis 3 how the first humans responded to God's authority. So this is Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 1. God's just made everything, and now we hear the story, this new character on the scene called the serpent. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This is the classic story known in Christian history as the fall of humanity, created for rest with God in the garden, and then because of their own disobedience, entering into despair. One of the things today, though, that I think drops like right off the page for us is the fact that Eve noticed how the fruits looked. She saw that the, tr the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes. She saw the pleasure. And I think one of the things that people might latch onto, that we might latch onto today, is looking at, at Eve and thinking, yeah, of course, like you see something pleasurable and you want to have it. And we read this story as just a classic, you know, Christian example of the way that God just like resists human pleasure. Eve wasn't supposed to take the thing that she really wanted, the thing that she saw that would make her happy. And we picture God as some sort of like arms folded man in the sky who's just like the anti-fun police, who's just like grumbling and groaning the moment that anyone's having some sort of joy or happiness in their life that he's just not interested in and he wants to shut it down. He wants to zap people's joy. I think we see this expressed in someone's, uh, the words of someone like Adrian Marie Brown, who says this, pleasure is the point. It's the point of life. Feeling good is not frivolous. It is freedom. I think that could be expressed in a way that God maybe could be depicted in the story as someone who is restricting people's pleasure and so restricting their freedom. Here's the issue. God is not anti-pleasure. God created the Garden of Eden as a place of eternal joy. He created it as a place of rest and happiness. One of the best descriptions of God I've heard is from a guy named Dallas Willard, who describes God as the happiest being in the universe. This is who God is. So what's the deal with pleasure? Well, what we get to see here is God put some restrictions around pleasure. Because before there was any type of curse from God against this action, what we see is that in this act of taking the fruit, of taking the thing that looked good, instantly in the very next verse, verse 7, we start to see that this pleasure outside of God's restrictions turned into shame. This is the issue. Now, what does this have to do with the question of authority? Why do I turn here when we're in Psalm 23, 3, and we want to start with this idea of God being the one who leads us? Well, because I think pleasure is actually the secondary piece. 
I think pleasure is the aftermath of an earlier decision that was already made. What we see is God making this commandment. You can eat anything you want except for this one tree. And then you see the serpent saying, after God had said, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. The serpent undermining the authority of God in verse 4, you will not surely die. It's a question of God's authority. And I think this is intended to be an example of the universal human story. And it's this. We choose self-authority over the authority of God. We do not want to listen to the divine, transcendent being who tells us how to live. We want to be able to choose on our own. We are not a people who are marked by listening to something, being obedient to something. We are marked by people who want to spread our wings and fly. I think it's telling that the marker for us of all of the flaws in human history is not, as it has been throughout cultures, the idea of like the Greek idea of hubris or arrogance or pride. For us, it's a lot of a sense of like internal sense of shame, lack of self-esteem. And this, is, this isn't necessarily wrong altogether. It's just that, I think we have like an inflated ego, to be honest with you. I think we think so highly of ourselves. We are so used to positioning ourselves on the throne that God's supposed to sit on that we are not used to actually saying, maybe we're supposed to like sit on something a little bit lower. I think of the words of James, James chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Yeah, I'm with you. Watch what comes next. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Here's one of the things that I think we struggle with today. Like Adam and Eve, we almost, we usurp the authority of God. We do not respect his control, his authority over the universe. We come like the people who are the lowly ones and trying to lift ourselves up. Here's something I don't know that we talk about. What if there's some issues with like an overinflated ego? What if there's some issues with like too high of a self-confidence? What if there's some issues of an overinflated level of self-esteem? And if this is confusing for you, I just want to say that I am here speaking from deep personal experience. Last week, we talked about meeting God in creation, and I said I have no clue what I'm doing. I'm relying on the wisdom of others. This is one for me that comes from deep personal experience. I was doing an internship uh, uh, before working here um, or at a church. And up to that point, and pretty much any job interview I'd done, when you get the classic question of what's your greatest strength, I turned to my confidence. I was a confident person who could very easily stumble into problems and figure out what to do with them. I was a very confident person. And I found myself sitting in this internship uh, in, a, in a room with a table, three other interns, my supervisor, and he would go around the room and he would turn to Tony and say, Tony, I thought you did really good on this project last week. Really excited for you. Here's another opportunity for you. And then he would turn to Jordan and he would say the same thing. And he would turn to Carter and he would say the same thing. And as he's going around the room, and there's four of us, he goes to the other three and he just bypassed over me and went to our book study. And I felt this like chip on my shoulder, like, what? Are you not acknowledging me? Are you kidding me? The way the story ended was I went into his office, sat down and said, hey, I need to confess my sin to you. I said these things, all my life I believed I'm a star, but you've made me realize I'm not. You've made me realize it's not about me. 
You've made me realize it's not about what I can do. You've made me realize that I just need to be here to serve, to be willing to follow others, to be able to be willing to listen. And my relationship with my supervisor is very good. So he laughed at me and I laughed back. Maybe that's not the ideal way to confess sin is in a moment of laughter, but it was what our relationship looked like. That was one of the most deeply formative experiences of my life was a recognition that I am not the star of the show. Authority does not reside in me. I am not on the throne. What does that look like? How, if we are a people who try and scramble and grasp at the authority of God, how does that get expressed? Well, I think it gets expressed in seeking after our own wisdom. And this is actually what we see in Psalm 23. Yes, God leads us, but he leads us on paths of righteousness. And this is another obstacle to our faith in Jesus. Let me read again in Genesis, starting at verse chapter 2, verse 16, and then jumping down. Chapter 2, verse 16. The Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then jumping down to verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. She saw that the fruit was good to make one wise. Why was it capable of doing that? Well, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And to eat of the fruit, this is what the image is doing in Genesis chapter 3, to eat of the fruit is to essentially say this, you are grasping at the ability to decide what's good and evil for yourself. You are not respecting God's authority to determine what's good and evil. The wisdom that's being talked about here is the wisdom that rejects the wisdom of God in order to take our own wisdom. And this is frequently what we do as well. We choose self-wisdom over the wisdom of God. We choose self-wisdom over the wisdom of God. I think of an example, a video that I saw of some parents who are celebrating teaching their kids to do this, to not live with the restrictions of others, but to show their own ability of how to make the right decisions, of knowing what's good and bad. They talked about how once a month they would have this time where they would say with their two boys, who I think were three years old and five years old, they would say yes to anything that their boys wanted. If their boys asked to have ice cream for dinner, they were having ice cream for dinner. If they wanted to spend the entire day at the park. They were spending the entire day at the park. If they wanted to uh, eat without any utensils and just eat with their hands, the parents would say yes. And it was described as just a way of like helping people mature into the self-wisdom, the self-autonomy, the self-authority that we should all be living by, to choose what's good, what's wrong for ourselves, what's best for ourselves, how we can find our own happiness. I think that's often the description that we're given. For those of you who are parents, I am not, for those of you who are parents, I'm sure you're hearing this and thinking, oh my goodness, my child would go absolutely berserk over this. It would be terrible. 
The parents, even the ones who are trying to push this themselves, set up restrictions. They say it's only going to be once a month, it's only going to be maybe for an afternoon and an evening, not even a full day, and they never tell the boys that they're doing it. They don't want them to realize that they have this type of power because they know that their boys, if they realize they had this type of power, would do some pretty dangerous things. I think that's true of us as well. We like to imagine that we are the masters of our own destiny, that we are able to understand what's right, what's good, determine what's best for us. We do not choose the path of righteousness that is laid out before us. I think it's fascinating that the image for wisdom in Psalm 23 is a path. It's not a bullet train of righteousness. It's not a Bugatti of righteousness. It's not even a horse-drawn carriage of righteousness. It's a path. It's an ancient, worn, well-trodden journey of travelers having gone for centuries and centuries down this road. I think this is a very different picture of wisdom than we, look, than we typically look at. I think our picture of wisdom is typically something that wants to be new and fresh and different. I think even when we look at how we make decisions, our favorite image is about looking at what doors are opening and closing. Because if you look at a door, I mean, once it's open, you step through on the other side and you're like, there's something new. I didn't see it before. It's a new opportunity. It's fresh. I didn't have this chance before. A path, on the other hand, is just something that you see that many other people have seen and that many other people will see and it goes forward and you stay the lane. It's not particularly novel or fresh, but it's a place of wisdom. And I think we lack that kind of wisdom today. I think we want something novel and fresh. I experienced this when I was just at camp this week. In fact, while I'm recording, I'm in between speaking at a camp where I am speaking to nine-year-olds. I prefer, ten, my tendency is when I'm speaking, I like to try and pull out things that are new, that haven't been heard. Then I go and speak to nine-year-olds, who most of them don't come from any church background at all, and they know literally nothing. And so I go from like reading this like enlightenment philosophy and seeing how it intersects with the story of scripture, and then I have to talk to a nine-year-old about Jesus. And then I come back and I'm trying to learn about like existentialism and dread, and then I have to go and talk to a nine-year-old about Jesus. What a humbling experience this has been for me. But I am inspired by a guy named Thomas Oden. Thomas is a man who, like me, kind of tr walked on a path where he just wanted to bring, within Christianity, he wanted to push it forward. He wanted to find things that were new. He wanted to carve out new paths. He wanted to take his own personal wisdom and insert it into Christianity. And there was a dramatic shift in his life where he just started to see Christianity not as this like driving forward into new territory, but as an ancient path of righteousness. And he started to read scripture and he started to read like early theologians and started to realize that there was this consistent path of wisdom. He even longed for the day that the epitaph on his tombstone would say he contributed nothing new to theology. That he was not someone who was marked by his new ideas, but he was marked by someone who was just consistent on this path. I think that's something we're in desperate need of and something that we are very inclined against. We resist the authority of God. We resist the wisdom of God. 
And we also resist the glory of God. Psalm 23, it opens, He leads me on paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Not for our own, for His name's sake. Where do we see this in Genesis? We'll look at verses 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's this temptation that the serpent put before Eve. You will be like God. You will become great. Your mere humanness, your frailty, your inadequacy that you might experience is going to be gone. You are going to be like God. I think that's the longing that many of us kind of feel inwardly. The problem is this. They already were. Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. They were made in his likeness. To be human is to be in some way like God. But what's happening here is a deceitful idea where that is still not good enough. It turns into some sort of clambering into wanting to rise up the platform even greater. I think this is just how we are wired today. We are people who like to define ourselves by what we are capable of doing, by how high we are on the platform. Even on a level as deep of identity, this is often how we think. We might define ourselves as a good listener. And how do you know that? Well, you know that because you see people who aren't good listeners and you're better than them. So you are a good listener. You might know yourself as a person of kindness. And how do you know that? Well, you get to see people who are not kind and you realize you are way more kind than they are. You might see yourself as a person of joy. How do you recognize that? Well, there's just something when you walk into a room, people talk about how bubbly you are. An issue with this is there's something about it that's a little bit crushing. If you always have to have this expectation of being joyful when you walk into a room, and for some of you, this is your story, what about those moments when you just don't measure up to that? See, when we pursue our own level of platform, when we pursue our own glory, it's always something that just comes in a game of comparison, or maybe even a better word, competition. Here, this word from the philosopher Thomas Hobbes, writing 400 years ago, and he just so powerfully defines humanity as just a race, that we are in this constant race. He says this, But this race, we must suppose to have no other goal, no other garland, but being foremost. And in it, to consider them, that is others, behind is glory for us. To consider them before is humility for us. To fall down on the sudden is disposition to weep. To see another fall, disposition to laugh. Continually to be outgone, misery. Continually to outgo the next before, felicity, that is happiness and to forsake the course, to die. He describes it as a race constantly pushing against others. I think this is just so true of how we live. We live in a game of constant comparison. To be a successful entrepreneur, you have to be someone who is self-motivated. Not just self-motivated, though, but more self-motivated than everyone else. 
And your success or failure depends on how much more self-motivated you are. To be a successful athlete, you have to have the self-discipline, the self, like the, the energy, the focus, the drive, and the determination more than others. You just have to have this drive, and your value is a comparison point to others. As I mentioned, I'm not a parent, but as I see my friends who are, I just see the crippling weight, the comparison uh, of the crippling weight of comparison for parents who just desperately want to be a good mom or desperately want to be a good dad and yet feel like they constantly are failing because we are locked in the game of comparison, of seeing what others are doing and the way that they don't measure up, seeing the ways that they fail. This is the reality, I think, that we live in today. We choose self-glory over the glory of God. We choose self-glory over the glory of God, but in that, we are just stuck in the crippling game of comparison. There's no life in it. Maybe that's because it's not how we were intended to live. Maybe that's because in all of these things, it's not how we were intended to live. I haven't used the word yet. But what all of these things are, our rejection of God's authority, our rejection of his wisdom, and our rejection of his glory, all of these things are ways of talking about sin. Ways of talking about the thing that is ultimately wrong with all of creation and ultimately wrong within all of us is our rebellion against God's authority, against his wisdom, and against his glory. And what we see is that when we, with our self-inflated egos, all of a sudden imagine that we are on the throne of God, more so often we are just struck by arrogance and pride or even insecurity that tries to measure up to it. When we, in our own self-wisdom, attempt to go a different direction, what we see is it's often marked by fear of making the wrong decision, of not being sure if we're going the right way, of making terrible choices and having to face the consequences of we when we go our path of own self-glory, self-celebration. We just get stuck in this game of comparison and we get crushed under the weight of expectation trying to measure up to those around us. This is not the way life's intended to be. But we're stuck. Or at least we were. Because here is the good news that I mentioned earlier. Good news literally is the translation of the word gospel, which is the centerpiece of the entire story of scripture and ultimately the entire story of human history. It's the story of Jesus. I want you to see how he handled these three areas, authority, wisdom, and glory, by turning with me to Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two, starting at verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Look at where these three things are at work. 
How does, how does Jesus deal with this question of authority? Jesus being the one who is both God and who is also man. He is both together. How does he deal with this intersection? Well, in the beginning, in verse 5, or in verse 6, he was in the form of God, but he didn't consider it something to be, listen to this word choice, grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He did not seek to grasp as in the way that Eve and Adam grasped at the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He did not attempt to grasp this authority, but instead emptied himself. He who had all authority over heaven and earth came down in the form of a servant. He did not play the game of an inflated self-ego. He came in utter humility. How does he deal with this question of wisdom? Well, in verse 8, being found in human form, he, that is Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, in his humility, walked the road of obedience, not of his own, like, human decision to say, I'm just going to figure out what's best. God's up there now. I'm here on earth. I'm going to figure out what I can do. I can see it better than him. It's my day to day life. He chose obedience even to the point where his pathway was leading straight to death, even death on a torturous cross. And what happened as a result of that submission in authority and in wisdom? Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, he now becomes the source of all of that glory and that celebration to go to not being marked by comparison or competition amongst humans, simply towards Jesus himself. The authority and the wisdom of Jesus being examples for us to push our glory to him as well. That is what we see in Jesus. So here's where I ultimately want to land. In Psalm 23, what we've been talking about is the fact that God is the one who leads us on paths of righteousness for him, his namesake. It's contained in a psalm that is all about life. It, tells the, it retells the story of the fall in Genesis 3 and then opens us up to being led by the one who already did it. Jesus being the one who leads us on the path of righteousness. Our simple task, and one that we often forget to do, is to simply practice obedience. And that's it. Not because in obedience we find Jesus. No, Jesus is already the one who's leading us on the path of righteousness. He's not the one who's standing at the other side waiting for us to get there. He's leading us. He's already done it. He's already chosen humility. He's already been obedient to the point of death. And now he leads us on the path of righteousness. But we actually need to practice it. Our challenge this week is to just think of a way in which we can be obedient. I remember a... <laughs> A uh, number of months ago, I realized that I'd just been sitting on something that I should have done like a year or two ago, but I hadn't. A previous landlord of mine um, who had had a relatively challenging life had reached out and I just hadn't connected with her for probably a year. And it just like this weight was just crushing me more and more and I just did not want to do it. And eventually I just had to go and tell a friend, hey, I'm going to connect with her this week. Keep me accountable to it. 
And I went that week and connected with her and we grabbed lunch and it was great. But for a year I had been delaying obedience, which maybe is just a fancy way of saying I'd been disobedient. I think this is our tendency. We delay obedience. Psalm 23 verse 3 is a reminder to us that if we genuinely want the life that is found in God, if we want his rest, his comfort, his care, his protection, his goodness, his mercy, what is part of that being wrapped up in is our obedience, not to earn it, but because this is the life that God has designed us for. This is our response. So may we be a people who step out in obedience and more and more obedience every single day.